It's March 18th, 2021. This is Rook. is an acclaimed Iranian-Canadian artist who is perhaps the poster boy for migration and integration. Ahmad Alan Sakhavars has managed to build success as an artist in different forms and on different continents, first as a star editorial cartoonist in Iran during the 60s and 70s, then coming to Canada post-revolution to become a renowned wildlife painter and a sculptor. His works are provocative and breathtaking, and his story is in three distinct acts. The great Ahmad Sakhavaz joins us for a feature interview today, plus lots of pre-Noruz fun. This is Conversations From, To, and About the Iranian Diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode number 94 of Rook. Welcome. Thank you, Kia. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Welcome to that's Navadachar in Farsi, Kian. Yes. <laughs> yes. Welcome to those of you listening around the world. Happy Noruz, or almost Noruz, or. Noruz Piruz, it's our fabulous Persian New Year that is focused, of course, on life, light, new beginnings, and getting vaccinated in time for the next Mehuni. Hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, Groovy Shaya. Hi, Hello, the fabulous Kion. Hello, Jian. It's exhausting saying hello to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Mehmuni. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Hello, everybody. Except Mehmuni, nobody brings anything to my Mehmuni. You we guys, bring you know, our light, our love, <laughs> our voice. Right. Your new vaccinations. <laughs> uh, by the way, 94th episode. We are six away from, if I can just do the math, uh, to carry the two, six away from 100. Wow. Yes. And for the 100th episode of Rook, what you are want, we doing? now let me explain something that uh, you'll find very interesting, young Kia. I can't wait. Yeah, not so young, but uh, <laughs> <Excuse> <laughs> let's, not, let's not go overboard. Oh, <laughs> I'm quite young, don't you? How dare that's right, you? That's well, right. I've never. Well, it just go makes on, me sound like me. I'm old if I call you young. But anyway, uh, 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 young Kia, uh, it's uh, it, you see, it's the 100th episode of Rook, and yeah. that happens to fall on the same week as the one year anniversary of You're kidding. How do you like wow. that? How is that possible? That is just, isn't that beautiful? Did it's you a know beautiful this thing. when you first started? Yes. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was planned that way. But it also happens to fall. So, well, if you think about it, there's two episodes of Rook a week, yeah. right? So how many weeks are there? Uh, 52. <laughs> 52. <laughs> 52. <laughs> 52. <laughs> I, I haven't had coffee. Okay, 52. Go uh, on. Go 52, on. yeah. Yes. So, and then, mm. so it only makes sense that, so how many episodes are there in a year? 104. <laughs> you're you're, in, you're the nervous. one in finance. I know, yes, yeah. you're putting yeah, pressure right. on So 104, me. but during mm. the Christmas break, we did one Pig Floyd episode yes. with four. Yeah. So, you know, so it all adds works up. out. It adds up, and mm -hmm. uh, so we get to 100 on that one-year anniversary. Amazing. Anyway, for our 100th episode, 
in our one-year anniversary, we have a very special guest, a feature interview, uh, and it's a rare interview. This is not somebody who um, does very many interviews, and I don't think, I don't know if this person has very seldom done any interviews in English. Mm. So uh, this will be very, very special. Any clues? I'm not going to announce. Yes, the person may be of Iranian background. <laughs> <laughs> that clarifies everything for me. Well, it narrows it down, doesn't it? It sure yeah, does. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, speaking of being of Iranian background, Ahmad Alan Sakhavars. Uh, have you seen his? Have you guys seen his sculptures? Not before, but when you s- told me that we are going to interview Ahmad, I looked. And and, I, have you never seen them in person? You never no, seen one no, in person. No, 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 they they're just breathtaking. I mean, they are incredible sculptures, and they're they're almost they have a bit of a cartoonish side to them. They're yes. they're dark and in some cases kind of macabre, but then they also mm. have a cartoonish element, which makes sense because he was a cartoonist back in Iran, uh, quite a famous one in the Pahlavi era. He had a regular column in Etelahat. N- then he comes to Canada and um, really embodies this philosophy of never look back. I'm going to start a new life and becomes a wildlife artist painting wildlife. Mm. Uh, and then a sculptor. And uh, the crazy thing about all of that is he's been very successful in all three of those different forms. So, uh, and he's just got a great life story. And by the way, it's his birthday today. Is it really? Isn't that cute? Yeah. yeah. That's really sweet. So Ahmad Sakhavaz is joining us for a feature interview in just, just a little bit. We'll look forward to that. We are on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We are coming to you on SoundCloud, on Spotify, iTunes, Instagram, YouTube, CastBox, and Telegram depending on how you like to consume the program. If you like to see the visuals now, we're shooting a lot of our interviews. You can do that, do so on Instagram and, uh, and on YouTube. But uh, most of our audience uh, consumes it as a podcast, and you guys are on SoundCloud and Spotify. Telegram for the bilingual, the uh, uh, English and um, Spanish. <laughs> English and Farsi versions of uh, Rook. Join our Rook community. If you like what we do on this show, you can check out our website at rookmedia.com. Become a patron. Uh, key on for just 5 or $10 a month. That's all it takes. People can choose 10 bucks or 5 bucks a month. I figure if you're a regular listener of the show and you understand that this is uh, how we're doing this, we're crowdsourcing, mm-hmm. um, we'd love you to, to, to be one of those people who becomes a patron. It makes a difference to us, yeah, right? Yeah, that way we don't have to commercialize everything. Exactly. And um, we'll keep going with this exploration of the connective tissue of Iranian diaspora identity with as, as few ads as possible, as you say. Rookmedia.com, and you press on the Support Us button. Noruz is coming up. I know it was just uh, a couple nights ago was the Chashan Basuri, yes. which for the non-Iranians is a tradition where uh, we jump over fire. Yeah. Uh, Did you do that? I, I lit a candle <laughs> and then put out the candle. You, yeah. Did you not jump over I did it? not jump over the candle. Gian. Well, I, I don't even shame. know. Shame. What, shame. <laughs> it's all about, you know, isn't it about some form, uh, one form Cleansing. or another of arson. You want to <laughs> yeah. light something on fire, basically. So I did that. I, uh, it was a candle. It was safer. There was no, uh, no, I mean, uh, I, I don't, you know, I'm relatively, we grew up in the West. Of course, and yes. And 
So there was no Persian community. So I, of course, I know I knew Noruz because we would do that with my yeah. family every mm-hmm. Noruz, and I, I loved it. And, and we, you know, the half scene, we did all the traditions. But I mean, Chashem Basui was that just wasn't a thing for you. Not at all in really? my family. Not at all. I, I mean, I didn't even know what it was until maybe the mid two thousands. Like, wow. you know, oh, the, really? yeah, yeah, like two thousand four when crazy. there was like a Persian community, and somebody invited me and it's said, "Now we're going to jump over fire." And I was like, <laughs> "What barbaric version of?" Being Persian, they were like, "No, this is who we are," and I was like, "Oh, of course." I mean, and now I celebrate it. I know it's a great tradition and everything, but but no, I didn't even. I That's didn't know so much funny. About it. I used to hate it. Like I, I used to be so embarrassed. Same way I'm sure that you looked at it. I thought it was so barbaric. Like, what is this? We like? No, are I we really doing witchcraft? I didn't know that. But yeah. I've grown to love it. It's one mm. of my favorite traditions in our culture. It's so Why beautiful. You jump over the fire, mm. and it cleanses you of all negative energy. Like, and you, you what you know what the saying? Sorchiyaman as to say it. What is it? Yeah, yeah. Man, man. You yeah. know, which literally translates to my uh, paleness goes to the fire and your color comes to me. Yes. That's such a beautiful part of our culture, yes, you know? Very beautiful. And you I literally I You cleanse yourself it. by cleaning your clothes that smell like smoke <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all yeah. a mental thing. No, it's right? it's uh, it's absolutely beautiful. But you know, was the pandemic? I mean, the last couple of years, right. I've, I've been invited. To, uh, I guess people were still doing it though. I, I thought, oh, I guess no one's doing it this year because I didn't get invited to anybody's house to do Chasha Masuri. You know, you can do it in your backyard. I know. Well, th- as I noticed, people were posting. <laughs> all my friends yeah. like <laughs> posting fifty people jumping over fires. And I was like, oh, I guess everybody did do it. Yeah. They just didn't invite me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what do you do with Chasha Masuri besides jumping over the fire? You dance. Drink. Actually, <laughs> it's a, it's a war zone in Iran. A I war mean. zone. Yeah. War zone. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Because people. A lot of firecrackers. <laughs> yeah, people grenades, make no some handmade bombs. Oh. And they yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think this is what we should be propagating <laughs> to our non-Iranian friends. And yeah, um, Iranian culture is very nice. <laughs> we make some bomb and then throw them. It's like every stereotype that. Um, oh, so what do you guys do for your New Year's? We create some bomb and then we uh, we create war zone. It's fun. Children enjoy playing in war zone. Shia, you ruined what? everything. Shia, what? What are you doing, man? And, and beautiful Shia. <laughs> we build a war zone and then we create the bomb. I, I mean, what, are you, what is happening No, here? really. It was right. At some point, it was really dangerous. I mean, oh, we said, no. Oh, really it is. <laughs> I mean recently recently it's getting better because uh, you know they they try to make people calm <laughs> we've traveled a long way from Keon's beautiful description of cleansing yeah. A, yeah. but no but no so really it, it it could be a very dangerous I you thought he was going to say something so profound yeah. I was listening intently he's like so we make bombs yeah. and we <laughs> tell me uh, okay um, you know, the next interview which uh, tell me a little bit more about this uh, beautiful Persian New Year um, uh, in Iran we create a war zone where we make bomb and then and American come and we <laughs> drop a bomb. Oh my God! Oh, Shia, so sweet Shia. No, but he's not wrong. Even when I was a little kid, I remember like there used to be like uh, uh, pe- uh, like 
PSAs, like on TV, public service announcement. They would they would discourage people <laughs> from making like handmade can't, grenades. Can't, we, stuff. we can't. I this swear. is I don't want. All right, so it let's stop real. it. Let's stop but it. But anyway, yeah. because forget yeah. all that. It's a beautiful <laughs> it's a finish. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, it leaks out what we're really like. It's <laughs> <laughs> like we're trying to present this beautiful. No, no, no. I mean that's a, a you're talking about some exceptional, surely something that is uh, very rare that <laughs> sure. happens. Uh, okay, that is uh, not I, what the Persian people no, no, and culture. But, like, that they we use do. it in like with fun, with a lot of fun yeah. <laughs> music. But seriously, it's really dangerous for people who have heart problems. Enough heart already, it's really <laughs> You're ruining oh, the show. <laughs> can you can you people mute Shia's have heart mic? problems? <laughs> yeah, they discourage people uh, from uh, coming uh, out on yeah. Well, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> never it, looked at it. It that is way, a time of peace <laughs> and love and light. We we pick up rifle and <laughs> we, <laughs> we drop a bomb. <laughs> when the Englishman come, we. Uh, Ah. So anyway, it's very cleansing in preparation for Nowruz. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, By the way, uh, we made a... So, you know, the, I mentioned on the last show that we were going to try making a Nowruz video. And I, I pledged that we would only speak in Farsi to the shock of both me and Keon that we were going to try and do this. You did this. Just remember that. So we made the video. And, uh, you know, uh, Captain Reza is going to try editing it with Savvy Roham. And, uh, but but I, I don't know if this is something we should put out. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, an exercise. And whatever credibility that the show had from some good interviews and some great guests, you know, is just once people see this thing of yeah, us, too. me trying to speak Farsi and Keon. <laughs> trying to explain the half scene oh it's just a disaster it is you know? <laughs> yeah so i we, we have a day we have two days to decide whether yeah. we're putting this thing out but i don't know try what do you think what do you think Kaya? generally i really love when you to speak farsi mm -hmm. i really love mm -hmm. it because you know, he doesn't get made like, fun of yeah, we yeah. were no, the ones no it's <laughs> like it's like me speaking english you you say that no, it could be charming it, and yeah. yours yes. is very yeah, it's cute very charming when you speak english yes yeah. same yeah. as you when you speak farsi well yeah you, but this video <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, I dancing. made some mean sabji pulova mahi and we had, uh, we did have a nice half scene and, and so uh, we did some dancing, yes. you know, so we'll, we'll decide. I mean, maybe we'll, you know. It was we'll, a lovely day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll decide, we'll, we'll announce it by the time of Clubhouse tomorrow night. Oh, we'll, yeah, yeah. We we've got our Clubhouse Rook Media. Now, I can't figure out we've, if we're, we'll, we'll do that. We've been doing the town halls on Friday nights on Clubhouse. If you're mm -hmm. not on Clubhouse already, it's this audio app uh, that you come on and you go into rooms and people just talk. And so we've created a Rook version, mm -hmm. uh, sort of after show Rook Town Hall, where we discuss an issue each week. And we've been doing it on Friday nights, Eastern time. That's Toronto, New York time. But uh, um, so come on Clubhouse and you can find me and find Rook. But um I don't know. Tomorrow night, mm -hmm. Friday night, is before no rules. Yes. I can't tell if anybody will be on Clubhouse or if everybody will be on Clubhouse. I have a feeling everybody will be there. We're yes. all preparing for no rules and, you know, you're home and 
Why not? Yeah, especially the people who live outside of mm-hmm, Iran. Mm-hmm. I think they want to be. We should do something informative for the broader community. Like, like should Persians make bombs <laughs> <laughs> on the week of Nowruz <laughs> and Sissa and have non-Persians weigh in on that? It well. would be the good time. There's already so much of that in the media. We're trying I know. To uh, get it's away like we created this show as an antidote, right? Like this is like we, you know, the whole mission of the show was like let the it's Iranian diaspora identity, but also it's in English non-Iranians mm-hmm. can and they go oh wow Paris Tanavoli mm-hmm. Shali Zomardi these incredible interesting people who are and you know <laughs> Now we turn the microphones on and we have like Shia, you know, like um, it is war zone, <laughs> like our New Year's tradition. Mm, yeah, it's true. We bring out the, these two, you know. I, I dropped a bomb on some people in my. But, but, but when we put the bomb. And the, <laughs> oh god no, that, that, that can be taken out of context i mean it's it's firecrackers homemade firecrackers oh that i see are, you mean fireworks <laughs> they're fireworks yeah but they, not yeah, bombs no like they're bombs let me explain another way the, the, oh, no please <laughs> don't the, say anything i don't know if you should I, yeah. iranian national tv is a very dry uh, t- <laughs> tv channel but in charge ambassadori they play like metallica concert <laughs> <laughs> to, to keep people in house please don't go out and <laughs> that is amazing he runs place listen I am happily oblivious to all of that the Persian culture I know and will continue to talk about as I have <laughs> all of my life is beautiful is one of like uh, and and I love Norus so much because it's yeah. about it really is about new beginnings and it's so universal yeah. and non it's not about ethnicity or nationalism or you know it's or religion it's just about inclusivity and there's so much that I love about it I I will not hear this uh, <laughs> this talk of <laughs> of reality. <laughs> 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 um, um, some somebody come with a shotgun. <laughs> they line the people up, and then Metallica no, no, okay. is play. <laughs> oh, but yeah. it's a very beautiful tradition. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Beautiful tradition. All right. We uh, we're gonna get to. By the way, speaking of sabzi polo and mahi, mm. Chef Haas will be joining us uh, in before this episode. Boy, I'm going to ask Chef Haas about Charles Ambassador. Uh Chef Haas is talking about something called galie sauce, galie mahi. Mm. Uh, 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 it's kind of a, what would you say, spicy tamarind kind of sauce fish that uh, how to best make that sauce for Noruz. Mm. Uh, and he also argues that sabzi polo and mahi, the fish and, and um, herbed rice, is not the only a dish for Noruz. He says that's a, a myth or a tradition that he wants to undo that mm. the suggestion that it's only the the only dish that comes with Noruz. So we'll get to Chef Haas, Ahmad Sakhovars in just a few moments. Very much looking forward uh, to a feature interview with him. But first, it's Thursday. You know what that means. She's a dear friend, a diaspora blend, a gym fanatic, and a kook who can be erratic, lovable, smart, and funny. And on a journey to discover what we actually discovered, here we go, Bachaha. It's all Persian to us with Kian Nadimi. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, Kianjun, what do you have for us today? So this segment is called It's All Persian to Us. So how could I possibly not talk about the most Persian thing of all time? Nowruz! My favorite day of the whole year. This Nowruz literally translates to New Day, which is widely known as the Persian New Year. But it's celebrated in many countries, including Iran, Iraq, Azerbaijan, India, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, basically all the Stans. Uh, But but not quite, you know, I don't want to, yes. Yes. Uh, So celebrated on the first day of spring at the exact moment the sun crosses the equator when day and night are of equal length. This the vernal equinox. That's exactly it. And this usually happens around March 19th to 21st. And right. this year it's happening on the 20th, actually. Right. I'm sure you knew that. Uh, it represents a time of rebirth and renewal when the frost of winter is over and is replaced with blooming flowers and singing birds. It's the link between humans and nature, the connective fabric of life that unites us all on Earth. The renewal of the world, as described by the 11th century Persian poet Omar Khayyam. So it started as a Zoroastrian celebration dating over 3,000 years in Persia has since evolved into a day celebrated by over 300 million people around the world. Regardless of ethnicity, religion, or language, it's non-ethnic, non-religious, and non-political. The very reason that it's one of the only things that all Persians can actually agree on. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Well, that besides the fact that Horma Sabzi is delicious and a divine creation fit for gods. But anyway... (laughs) The exact origins of Nowruz are unknown, but there is a legend written in the Shahnameh, the Book of Kings. Okay. There was once a king, King Jamshid, and if you remember, he's the same king that apparently made the discovery of wine, oh, according really? to legend. Oh, yes, yeah. this was the same right. King Jamshid. Yeah, so King Jamshid yeah. <laughs> yeah, was known as one of the most noble kings of all time and deeply cared for his people. So he noticed that one year there was the coldest winter of all time. Evil powers were taking over, drought and famine everywhere. It was pandemic. That's (laughs) (laughs) close. It really feels like it right now. So he decided to take matters into his own hands, Mm. and he fought back and destroyed the demons. He made the demons build him a throne with all the jewels that he'd captured from from these demons. (laughs) (laughs) And he he forced them basically to lift them into the sky. So the sun illuminated all the jewels and uh, light spread around the world and the famine and uh, all the awful things that were happening in the world were over. And so he he brought peace back onto earth and all the animals and humans did, did and King everybody Jamshid rejoiced. single-handedly <laughs> beat back yes, the Yes, 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 he did, Jean. I'm glad you asked. Yes. Well, he invented wine. What do you yes. expect? Yeah. The guy is King Jamshid. Yeah. <laughs> He's a great man, yeah, I tell you. So, so th- King Jamshid is the man known to have started Nowruz, the first day of spring known as the first day of the year. All right. Yes. Oh, a little King fun Jamshid. fact for you. I love this guy. So Nowruz is an ancient celebration that has truly stood the test of time. We've endured many tragedies throughout our long history and have face countless enemies who attempted to wipe out our culture and break our spirit. Yet our culture and traditions have lived on by doing such things as setting up the half scene every year for over 3,000 years. This is a celebration deeply embedded in our ancient culture, the cultural identity that unites us all that's celebrated around the world. Nowruz is our symbol of resistance. So this year we celebrate Nowruz, our most notable ancient tradition, with hope for a brighter and happier year ahead. Wishing everyone and their loved ones health, peace, prosperity, and happiness. Haruzaton Noruz, Noruzaton Piruz. It's all Persian to us. Mm.
Thank you. Nicely done. Keon with a uh, an explanation of Noruz and some background and and I think we can safely say that we didn't Persians did invent Noruz since it's the Persian. This with 110% accuracy I can say is Persian. <laughs> All right. Uh, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, stick around. We'll uh, turn your microphones off and we'll get uh, uh, Chef Haas ready ready as well to join us in about an hour from now. Let's get to our feature guest. And our feature guest today is an acclaimed Iranian-Canadian artist who has gained recognition and tremendous success on two continents in his life and has made a name for himself around the world. But perhaps most significantly, he has done so in a few different art forms as well. Ahmad Alan Sakhavarz is a multifaceted creator who has used drawing, painting, and sculpting as vehicles with which to weave his imagination into an art form. Oftentimes, he's used his art as a meditation on the human condition. From his early days in Iran doing caricatures and political cartoons at famous magazines and newspapers, to his super successful wildlife paintings in Canada, and now his very provocative, memorable, and popular sculptures, Ahmad's award-winning work always leaves an impression. His pieces are housed in both private and corporate collections across North America and are exhibited in numerous museums and galleries across Canada and the United States, including the Royal Ontario Museum, the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa, and the Lee Yaw Key Art Museum in Wisconsin. He's also done a fair amount of street and public art that you may have just seen in your travels across North America. But right now, Ahmad Sakhavaz joins me from Streetsville, Ontario, Canada. Hello, sir. Hello, Jean. How are you? I am uh, so happy to get to talk to you again. I, I've been looking forward to this. As you know, I'm a fan, and I thank you for doing this. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, I really appreciate uh, that you're spending time to talk to me. Looking forward. By the way, before we go any further, I should say happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> happy birthday to you. Thank you very much, Jean. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, one of the outstanding qualities that has been cited when it comes to your talents, and I just mentioned it in the introduction, is that you've made your living as an artist in three seemingly very different spaces, cartoonist, painter of wildlife, sculptor. But there is actually a chronology to your artistic journey. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to call it the three acts of Ahmad Sakhavars and take, yes, that's what it take is, them basically. one at a time. <laughs> but but first, a general question. Is it your sense, Ahmad John, that, that when someone is a creative person like you, an artist, that morphing or switching or evolving from one art form to another is a natural occurrence? In other words, should we be so shocked that you've made a name for yourself in all these different artistic ways? Uh, no, actually, I, I think, uh, you know, changing medium, changing, uh, you know, different types of artwork, uh, it, it's a part of, uh, you know, um, of artists that, I mean, it just uh, uh, creates some sort of, uh, you know, improvement. I mean, I don't see uh, anything, uh, you know, wrong, you know, with being a practitioner of different kinds of a genre of art. But <clears throat> as far as my work is concerned, uh, in, in a way, it was uh, somehow all these three types of work that I did, they were related together. I mean, my cartooning at the time showed me how to uh, be able to, uh, you know, think and then uh, 
create ideas and then improve my uh, uh you know ability as an illustrator and then working in magazines and you know uh, that helped me from that aspect of it and then the paintings again uh, that part of the ability of thinking and figuring out the the ideas behind the painting comes to play but when it comes to my uh, sculptures the, the best way to explain it is that I'm, I'm just basically going back to my cartooning days again <laughs> because the ideas have changed and then exactly the way I was thinking uh, you know about my cartoons not necessarily the political or editorial cartoons but I had I mean other kinds of drawings that I mean falls into that category yeah, I mean, then now it's like a circle that is coming but, but together. They, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to that for sure. But do they all come yeah. from the same creative well, or or do they represent different sides of you? In other words, if you're having a great day, you're feeling really happy. Is it like, well, then I'm going to do wildlife, or if if you're pissed off, it you have to do a, a cartoon, yeah. or or if you're in a certain <laughs> space, you have to do a sculpture. I mean, or are they all from the same kind of uh, creative well, well inside you? Well, well, let's put it this way. I mean, I. I think every type of artwork uh, that I do uh, helps me to express one sections of my thinkings, for instance. I mean, when I'm thinking philosophically and I have ideas about human relations and, uh, you know, activities of mind, uh, sculpture form comes more handy than painting to me. And then when I think about environment sometimes and I get involved with some, you know, emotion about the, the vanishing wildlife and then, you know, which has always been my passion, then what I do, painting comes to play. And then some, as you put it, I'm really pissed. I go back and do some <laughs> cartooning about some people that I really like to, you know, talk about. Why Why only three arts? I'm a bit disappointed. Why not playing the piano as well and doing yoga and <laughs> and mastering well, listen, every listen. other every other art possible? Listen, yeah. When I was, I started with violin when I was a kid. My father thought that, I mean, I should learn violin. I, I played it for maybe three, four sessions and I just put it aside. I mean, it wasn't me. Then I started to play accordion. That didn't take me anywhere <laughs> for a while. Then I started to play uh, classical guitar, you okay. know, in Iran. But this just coincided with the time that I was getting married. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, jack of all trade, master of none. That's exactly. <laughs> master of at least three. <laughs> master of at least three. The, the music's on hold for now. You're still young. <laughs> Uh, listen, in an effort to further situate you before we I, I get into your acts, I was thinking, uh, I just wanted to make a note on your identity. I mean, you spent the first 35 years of your life in Iran, the last 40 or so years in Canada. It's interesting because you're well known in art circles in both countries, but largely, I think, for very different art forms. In Canada, I mean, I actually first got to know your name associated with your paintings of wildlife, oil on canvas, yes. watercolor. Uh, They've been, as I say, wildly popular and well-known in Canada. In fact, I thought of you as a, a Canadian painter. I didn't even know. I didn't, I didn't know you yet. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you were Iranian. In Iran, you came to public attention as a cartoonist and a caricaturist. Do you, do you get the sense that the two communities that form your dual identity see you in different ways? Um, 
I would say so, yes. I mean, the, some people, especially in, in Iran, they're quite familiar with what I was doing, you know. But here in Canada, for instance, I mean, when I go back and talk to some of my Iranian friends from before coming to Canada, they're surprised. And then because they're not <laughs> familiar with this type of work that I've done here, because this was something completely new that I came across here. And uh, for the first time, I saw that there's such a genre of art as wildlife, which, I mean, I've always, you know, loved animals and birds and that those kinds of things and, and the environment and hunting scenes and all those things it was always my passion and I would follow it. But I mean, so here, that's why I found this um, particular kind of art and I got into it. But in Iran, uh, the, who know me, they know me still as a cartoonist. Right, right. And gradually after the social media and the Facebook and then Instagram that I put my work, by in, in the surprise, I mean, they, they realize that, I mean, I've <laughs> right. done such a thing. And they say, right. you know, what kind of a work is that? And and maybe the sculptural works uh, have been the nexus of your identity exactly. and art forms. Um, so let's go back to to Act One. Ahmad Sakhlaz yes. growing up in Tehran. You're you're born in 1945. You're you're an only child. By the time you were born, both of your siblings had sadly died, and you you have fond memories of movies and comic books. Uh, this is in and amongst the accordion playing, of course. Tell tell me tell me about Ahmad as a kid in Iran in the 1950s. Well, uh, as as I was, uh, you know, uh, the only child in the family, and then after losing the two uh, siblings before me, my parents were really very protective of me, and then uh, didn't let me go out as other kids at at that time to play in the streets, and then uh, so in, in our small family, basically, I needed to spend some time, and then from the day one, I can remember I was interested in drawings. Doing the normal stuff that I mean, uh, you know, uh, children do, and but gradually um, I started to see different types of, uh, you know, artworks that I was really enjoying it, and then that was during that time I remember that my father used to uh, take me to uh, see a movie every every Friday, which is the holiday in in Iran, and then. Uh, from uh, when we were coming back, usually after seeing the matinee uh, in uh, downtown uh, of this city, then I used to uh, come back, and on our way back home, there was the, this uh, uh, newsstand uh, selling uh, international newspapers and magazines, I mean, for, from all over the world. And among these things, usually on the first, uh, you know, layer of all these papers and magazines there were all bunch of uh, there was a uh, you know a stack of uh, uh, american uh, uh, cartoons comic cartoon comic books. books comic books yes so uh, i usually picked up a few of these things and that was the, enough for me for the rest of the week and then days to uh, you know sitting and the following these things and then i couldn't read anything uh, and, uh, you know, what was going on at the story, but I was following, I, I would love to draw these things and I started to copy from this thing. That basically it was the uh, basis for, for all the ability which I, uh, you know, later on, uh, you know, got uh, through the drawings. So this is, this was the first, uh, actually, uh, my, uh, you know, encounter with cartoonings. Did you, you know? do you remember the first 
caricature that you you drew that you really i mean did you draw your dad or something or how, how did you know you had a facility for that yes my father was my best uh, model and then <laughs> a few of the families uh, you know people that i used to draw and then i, I kept doing it until um, and then another thing was which was really interesting for me is that i mean we used to buy uh, this um, very popular satirical magazine in iran used to uh, be used to uh, be called uh, Tofiq, which was a very old, uh, you know, illustrated uh, satirical magazine with and, all and quite these political, right? Tofiq, very right, political. Yeah. Yes, very political. And then at that time, I was just I, I, uh, interested in the drawings, and then uh, you know, along with the comic books, which were my the, the major source for my inspirations. These magazines, Tofiq, and then there was another one that I remember called Haji Baba. Uh, that that one also, uh, you know, we used to buy it. And then, uh, I mean, I was spending time looking at these cartoons and trying to copy them for years before I even realized that, I mean, I can do something with these drawings. Well, I know that by the time you're around 18 years old or you're in your late teens in the early 1960s, you actually go to Topik and you say... Yes. You say, hey, can I hang out with you guys? Uh, and they end up including you in their weekly meetings and sort of um, including you in their space. What, what do you think that they, they saw in this young Ahmad Sakhavaz? Uh, I think regardless of the subject matter of the cartoon and the drawings that, I mean, I was trying to, you know, emulate, uh, the drawings, were, they were really good, actually. I mean, uh, compared to uh, my age back then, the drawings were uh, something that they could use if they had any meaning behind it, you know? So the ability of to draw was there and then they knew that they can do something with my work. So that's why he suggested that. I mean, that why don't you come and join us? I mean, this is talking about the, uh, the editor-in-chief of the, the this magazine on that date, which I just dared to take some of my drawings <laughs> to their office. Yeah, and then they had this, uh, the weekly uh, edi um, editorial meetings that they used to sit together and then thinking about different ideas, going through the political events of the day and then making decisions that, I mean, uh, what uh, is going to go to the, the, for the cover. And then this, this gathering basically was the who and uh, who and uh, you who's know, who, who, who's who, who is who mm -hmm. of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Iranian, uh, writers and poets and then uh you know cartoonists and so they that. would say we want to do some sort of uh take some sort of uh political jab or or satire of the the foreign minister ahmed can you draw his uh, his face Is something that? like that uh -huh. yeah something similar to that because i mean the ideas was was uh, i mean i was usually sitting back and listen to these guys you know so the idea was uh, was present presented following the news of the day or the week and then everybody had an uh, had an idea how to satirize these things. I mean, the uh, the, the cartoonist, uh, for instance, the first cartooning uh, idea which was presented, somebody else was going to add something to it, or maybe the other one had a different approach to get to this uh, particular idea. And that's how they were figuring out that I mean, okay, these are the ideas. Then they started to, uh, for instance, say, okay, uh, Mr. So-and-so, you do these five, Mr. So-and-so, you do this. And then, Ahmed, maybe you want to do these things, plus a couple of, uh, you know, commercials for the, uh, the 
soap and uh, <laughs> uh, you know shampoos that I mean they needed to be a very sexy for instance uh, you know lady drawing I was very good at it so th- <laughs> I mean I was usually assigned to do those guys uh, you were drawing those as well oh yes by the late 60s early 70s you've got a degree in English lit you score a job as a staff cartoonist for the big Iranian daily newspaper Etelahat. Uh, yes. You even have a regular column called As Negaya Sakhavaz from uh, Sakhavaz's yes. View. Uh, <laughs> yes. How how would you describe that time in your life? It was uh, it was a very good time uh, because I I was beginning things uh, and then seriously getting involved uh, in, in things that I mean I thought is going to my future the cartooning and then getting involved with it a lot and uh, being accepted uh, uh, there as a staff cartoonist was a big thing for me because I mean there I was completely on my own and then I everything which was going uh, on the paper I had to come up with the idea and then pass it through the editor and then it was going to be published next morning or next day uh, next evening when the the paper used to be uh, you know distributed but anyways um, apart from that um, the the other part of it i mean getting involved as a translator and then getting involved into the uh, part of the uh, radio and television part of it which i got involved then that was again a beginning for me to think that okay from my other part of the abilities which was not necessarily art then again that was a, a beginning for uh, to to start the future from that point of view when you were doing as negaya at sakharas how how much freedom did you have to, to you had this you had your own space in a big newspaper i mean that's people dream of that in a, in a lifetime what yes what would they tell you what you can do or not do or would you mm-hmm. just come up with ideas and 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 be able to draw them uh well the ideas were all mine I mean, I, back then, by that time, I mean, I had enough experience to be able to, you know, um, draw cartoons which were relevant to the uh, different happenings in in the um, country. But having said that, uh, first of all, I mean, we had to uh, pass it through the, uh, you know, approval of the uh, editor there, which was obvious. But apart from that, I mean, there was a uh, basically known... Uh, idea of of where are those places that you could go with your uh, you know article or your cartoon and things of that sort. So basically, we know the parameters that within which we can uh, you know operate satire or no satire. Anyways, there were all kinds of restrictions that everybody was aware of that, and then it was very you know. Uh, dangerous to step out of that. Yeah, let me ask you about that. So you're not you're not talking about the editor anymore. You're talking about the political culture of the exactly. time and the, yes. the under the Shah. Uh, so I mean just to recap, I mean this is the 70s you have this prominent gig at Etelaat, but you have to be careful what you are lampooning in your cartoons on a political level. You said we learned to work within the censorship. We knew our boundaries. You just said it exactly. again now. What what would that mean? I mean, would that mean policing yourself when you're actually drawing like thinking well oh i, I better not you know better Unfor- remove this face or better to- yes it is i mean you uh, working in those uh, envi- environments i mean sooner or later you find yourself um, with a kind of self censorship 
you know, things that, I mean, has grown into you. Otherwise, uh, you're not either, uh, you know, are able to carry on as you're, the work you're, doing, uh, you're going to do, or even if you, I mean, there, was, there wasn't any possibility that, that if, even if I had drawn something which was a little bit, you know, too much, it wouldn't pass even through the next step of the uh, control. So, yes, everybody... But, but it's quite a paradox because it, you know, political cartooning or, you know, that, I mean, that should be the apex of freedom, right? Because that that's well, uh, it's one thing for a songwriter to, to have to pass through censorship. It's another thing for, for you know, your job is, is sort of criticism or is to humorously make fun of things or whatever, right? Yes, but I mean, th- but that's for the uh, same reason that in the most... Uh, subjects that uh, that we were handling and we were talking about they were not uh you know they were social problems more than political problems i mean talking about for instance the high rent uh, high rate of uh, you know rent in in i mean the the the, the, uh, the scarce uh city of of the um, for instance available houses for um, ordinary people for rent but at the same time, for instance, uh, you know, foreigners would be able to uh, rent wherever they wanted, whatever they wanted, or the uh, talking about the la- lack of proper in- infrastructures, for instance, the asphalt in- of the streets and the, the, the potholes. And then a little bit further ahead about uh, talking about the uh, corruptions uh, in the society or a little bit of corruption in the the government uh, uh, you know that kind of thing but for instance the royal family out of completely touch you know that you're not going to go there high-ranking people in military for instance i mean the heads of different departments this out of touch you couldn't touch no chance no chance police no chance those kinds of things. Well, you almost get arrested when you, at one point, you draw a, if I have this correctly, it's a sort of a, a justice scale symbol with a with, yeah. a with a policeman with a baton, and and uh, this is of course in the Pat Levy days. H- how much did it shake you up almost getting hauled away to, to, to prison for that? That's right. Because it was a very silly, uh, you know, uh, things that happened. It was just completely a co- coincidence of this uh, sim- symbol of. Uh, policeman that I had drawn was uh, had a very close resemblance to the head of the um, uh, police department and that's why this guy was so pissed oh so uh, you weren't you weren't actually drawing the head of the police but no. it got it got interpreted that way that's w- right. what did he look like yeah he was a three-star uh, general and then I, I had seen him several times and uh, with a big belly and a very uh, you know a thick um, mustache, <laughs> and the characters that we were using in our cartoons. I mean, you create some sort of a character. I mean, that I mean, for a, for instance, for these um, army generals, for instance. I mean, we had the guy with a big belly and the big uh, mustache, and then, for instance, in the dark sunglasses on that kind <laughs> of thing. Right, or, right. For the, and, and this guy, I mean, was a symbol of a... He actually looked like man. that. <laughs> it was exactly, I mean, after, and, you know, after uh, I really, uh, you know, double-checked and see that, yeah, it was an accident. But anyways, I mean, it was very close to the point that uh, my editor called me and then they said that don't show up for a while. And then they had, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, basically out of their ways 
to convince this guy that it has been something uh, that is, is symbolic. If my editor wasn't there, I mean, the least could have done to me is that I mean, just, just throw me in jail for a few days maybe back right, then. I mean, right. it wasn't a major thing, but to be punished properly, not to do it again. Speaking of symbols, uh, Ahmed, you had a little crow that would appear in your cartoons. People still know you from this this crow that would be in the yes. in the cartoon. What what was that about? What did that represent? Well, uh, I started to do these things right after I basically I, I started my work in Etalat, which I had my uh, daily column. I um, incorporated this uh, little bird, uh, the crow. It was an accidental at the beginning, but later on, uh, I realized that, I mean, some people had mentioned that, that they have seen such a thing in this particular cartoon that I did. Then I started to use it, and then by these, uh, by, by thinking that, well, having crow in particular, which is a very curious bird, <laughs> and, and uh, it likes to poke, uh, you know, its nose to everything, and then sometimes gets very aggressive at the same time, very nosy. So I thought, well, why not keep this uh, little bird here and there? And then uh, it was some kind of an amusement that people trying to find it, that where, where the bird is, this and that. But gradually, this bird became really the, the, the source of interest in my cartoons <laughs> rather than the idea or the whole thing. And the, the, everybody who picked up the paper, the first thing they did by looking at my cartoon, they were, uh, you know, looking for the bird, <laughs> where the bird is. And, and now everybody uh, who, uh, you know, sees me and talks to me, and then they Im- immediately re- remember that, I'm, oh, oh, you are the guy with the, with the calor. See, see, if it, in so. in the twenty first century, you would have uh, all kinds of merchandise with the bird on it, and you'd be you'd be selling yes. uh, <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be selling ball caps with the the bird on it, uh, and I the know. bird would have its own Instagram account. And, you know. <laughs> you yes. said that by the late nineteen seventies, so that you know the the revolution is coming, and there's this weird pocket. There's this moment where there was more freedom to do editorial and political cartoons in the lead up to the yeah. revolution. And then, in fact, in the first few months, right around, right around when the, the Shah flees, was, was there a period when you thought this revolution might be a positive thing, that it might be turning out well for you as a, as a, a journalist and a cartoonist? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, from uh, mid-'70s, uh, things started to go a little bit better. You know, the gov- government, under the pressure of the, uh, you know, some international pressures, they started to, um, you know, give some more freedom. Uh, it was getting better to the point that the, the, ju- the, 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 the newspapers started to take advantage of all these freedoms of the press. Through, I mean, the, the journalists were a little bit more uh, freer to do what they wanted to do. And it was really hopeful time that if, I mean, we thought that the thing getting better and then, uh, you know, gradually uh, the government was letting go. But this started to become more and more and more than gradually the uh, <clears throat> talks of, of a revolution. The, the, it was the beginning of the revolution. There wasn't, we, nobody had an idea that, I mean, the revolution is going to be something uh, that we're facing with today. Right. Uh, everybody was thinking about complete freedom, freedom of speech, but unfortunately, 
by the time that the mullahs came to power and then the regime started to fall apart, they immediately and gradually started to realize that, I mean, this freedom of press that they were taking advantage of by the help of the journalists and the cartoonists and all these people so far, if it's real free, it can be damaging to them, you know. As you intimate, the freedom does not last. Etelat gets taken over by the mullahs. You're out of a job. Uh, you're also the news editor at Iran's national radio and television. You lose your position there as well. This was obviously would be a heartbreaking period for anybody. It must have been for you. Tell me about the emotions of that time. Uncertainty. You don't know uh, uh, what's going to happen because uh, suddenly you lose uh all the jobs that you had and uh, <clears throat> at the same time uh i was basically and people like me uh we were uh we were con- considered as a uh, as a outsider you know i mean as as if you don't belong anymore and there was no job there was no possibility of the job and then uh, every day something was happening that I mean, you felt that, uh, you know, your family is not uh, in, uh, in, in a better position. Uh, they don't know what to do. I mean, I had two children. So uh, we decided to uh, uh, leave. Well, there, there were then, also, I should say, I mean, there were journalists being killed, right? I mean, there were... Definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, the, the group uh, of, of my friends and my colleagues... That we were working together, a few of them managed to uh, get out on time, and then they fled to, uh, uh, for instance, Europe, different parts of Europe. And then there were a whole bunch of people that they were thrown to jail, you know, or they were told that I mean, they used to call them. There was a term for it that I mean, they uh, they were forbidden uh, writers, you know. I mean. Basically, they, for, they, they forced them not, not to do anything. And then if they did something, and it was the possibility. I remember the last, uh, uh, it was about a couple of weeks before <clears throat> the I mean, time that I live. I mean, I left Iran. I, uh, um, the, the, one of the papers, that satirical new paper that, I mean, that we were uh, uh, sending out, and then it was criticism of, of mullahs and everybody in it, but even back then. I mean, a whole bunch of, I mean, there's a huge mob, you know. Uh, it was that, I mean, they were basically surrounding the building and then they were asking for the editor of the magazine and everybody was carrying with clubs and stuff like that, that kind of thing. That, I mean, fortunately, I wasn't there there in, in that day, but, but the rest of the, uh, you know, group that we were working together in the paper, I mean, they were basically surrounded, and after a while, then they came out, and then, uh, you know, they had to apologize and then describe to them that they're not going to do it anymore because everything was turning to something really sacred and religious. I mean, if yeah. you did something and then you insulted yeah. the mullah, you were, uh, you know, excommunicated. Uh, yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know? it was really dangerous. But so, I never. Uh, I, I mean, I'm always. It's um, the, the dichotomy is always so. 
uh, difficult and, and fascinating, quite frankly, that, you, you know, you're talking about journalists or people at Etelaat who um, had been critical of the Shah, right? They're not necessarily uh, all, yeah. you know, tight with the with the royal family or something. And yeah. yet these are the people, you know, because when there is such a fundamentalist kind of revolution, the, the crackdown begins on any kind of critical thinking, yes. even because they, as you say, they know they can come after you next, you know? So, so let's get yes. rid of all the journalists. Get, let's get rid of all the thinkers. Let's get rid of all the, yeah. um, it, it is so profoundly sad. Yes, you, you were not part of the team anymore. Let's put it this way. There was no trust. There was no trust. You know, that's why we, I mean, I decided that, I mean, it's time to, uh, you know, come out. So in 1980, you leave Iran with your wife, with your two kids. You come to Canada. Um, Ahmed, you've told me that you knew that you would not return to Iran again, and that yes. that you felt there was no hope, that you needed to leave everything behind you. You had to start from scratch. You've also said, part of my success in Canada was that I never looked back. That is true. Tell me what that means. Coming out of Iran, it wasn't, uh, like as difficult for me as has been difficult for some people that had to, for instance, go out of the country and taking with the, the you know donkeys and the mules that kind of thing. No, I mean back then I came out very easy with my family. Uh, but when I came to Canada immediately after that, uh, a group of my friends who had fled Iran and then they were trying. I mean, some of them were in. in uh, uh, England in particular, they contacted me and then they said that we are going to recreate the same magazine in exile in England. Because the magazine in Iran, right before I, I, I left, it was banned and then closed down and no, there was no, uh, you know, possibility for it to, to continue anymore. Right. It was one of the banned papers, you know. So we started to do the, the, the magazine outside. And back then, I thought to myself, well, I, I went through all these kinds of limitations and, and the censorship and stuff like that. Now I'm out, out of the country and then I have the possibility and then the ability to do what I really want to say. And after that, I had seen what happened, how the revolution that we had in mind completely changed to something completely different and then all these things. And then after that, I was really fresh still connected with the things that were happening in Iran. And then we exactly started to do right. And, uh, you know, I, I do my cartoons with no censorship in mind, with no limitation. And that was the time that I knew I couldn't go back ever again. That was one of the major reasons. Uh, because they were killing, literally, they were killing people outside Iran. I mean, they killed a couple of journalists and, uh, you know, some politicians and stuff like that. And because of the subjects that I had taken in my cartoons and talked about him, I mean, there was no way that I could go back, right. you know, and everybody knew what I was doing because some of these papers, you know, that were, uh, you know, published in England, I mean, they ended up a few, and they knew exactly who were doing what. So that was... Um, uh, one of the reasons. So I couldn't go back. I started to do my uh, cartooning the year. It was very difficult at the beginning. The year that I came here coincided with the year that I won a um, editorial cartoon prize in 
that was in a competition in Montreal uh, that I, you know, we used to participate. And then that year, you know, ironically, my drawing uh, won the uh, prize of the editorial cartoons, you know. So when I came here, uh, the uh, some of the uh, uh, organizers of, of that uh, show, which were in contact with me to send me the check and stuff like that, they told me that they can introduce me to some of uh, uh, Canadian cartoonists. I mean, the first person that they uh, introduced me to was Ben Weeks. Right. Uh, yeah, very and famous, then, uh, a very famous Canadian cartoonist. Yes, yeah. one of the uh, very famous Canadian cartoonists. So I started to. Uh, he took me under his wings, basically. I mean, I used to go to his uh, uh, the office in Jarvis Street, and then I mean, he was he introduced me to uh, a few more uh, Canadian cartoonists like Andy Donato mm -hmm. and and Ted Martin, people like that. They offered me basically a part-time job in Toronto Sun. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I started to uh, work, but because the, the cartooning job, uh, it was a job basically. And I mean, I was doing some uh, illustrations for the uh, Toronto Sun, and then I was illustrating the ideas that were that people were sending to right, right. Uh, the magazine. It wasn't your stuff, and, right. yeah. And then Andy Donato uh, was the you know staff cartoonist, and then every day he had his own. Uh, cartoon and then um, anyways it's the time that I was I was just starting to do uh, you know my paintings and then uh, hang on a second can I can I just get you to stop there for a second because yeah um, I just want to stop and, and talk for a second about this idea of not looking back mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because uh, I, I think you're you're being a bit modest in terms of how strong uh, the, 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 what, what kind of a strong will it takes to say okay I'm moving I'm moving unwittingly it wasn't your choice to move in 19 I mean it was your choice but uh, yeah. it was circumstances that created the conditions where you had to make that choice to leave um, but then to come to Canada and say I'm not going to look back we're going to start from scratch we're going to do it here this is yes. this is actually quite profound because as you know. There are many Iranians still who come yes. to the diaspora and, and live for years in, say, North America, and they do look back. <laughs> and they exist in an exilic mindset of thinking, okay, well, let's squat here for a while in Canada before we're going to gloriously return to Iran one day. Um, yes. and, and, and I've always argued personally, uh, just to inject my own thought in here, but that that is a... Um, that is a prescription for inaction. That is that our community outside of Iran, our diaspora, is never going to grow and thrive and have the social and political and economic and um, and cultural kind of impact it should yes. have in the world. As long as people are sitting here thinking, "Well, when do we go back to Iran one day?" You know, rather than investing I, in the new country. What What yes. would you say to folks who still um, do look back as opposed well, to what I you did? Yeah, I, mean, I think there are two groups of people. I mean, when we're talking about these things, there are a group of people that had a very good, successful life in Iran as far as making money and had everything. But the, gradually, they, I mean, they didn't want the atmosphere. I mean, there was pressure, there was censorship. I mean, the, uh, there was, you know, all these kinds of uh, uh, religious impose, imp ideas imposing to people this and that. So, they, yes, I mean, they, they, they still like the country, but the just got tired of it and just want to get out somewhere 
that they're away from all these problems that is, you know, happening in the country. Well, these group of people, they're still waiting, and they, all the time they're going to be waiting for something that, uh, I mean, that things change and turn around, and exactly going to be like, you know, mid-50s and 60s, and then everything is going to be rosy, and they're going to go back again, because they, they, they like and then they never wanted to to mingle with this part of the uh, you know the journey in my case i had no other choice i couldn't go back that was one part of it and that not going go back forced me to completely change my ideas about what i wanted to do i, I no but you other- wouldn't have been the first person you could have said you know it's Let's wait for a few years. The revolution will be over. The the Akhundal will go, and I'll go back. You could have yeah. said that, even even though I obviously, could. you know, I mean, there are people who say that now who are on the enemy list of the the regime or whatever, and who are still waiting, right? Um, yeah. And and uh, the reason I'm I'm stopping on this is because you, to me, as I've done the research on you, and and as I'm talking to you, you really represent that example of someone who um, you, you really have done this successfully. Um, you moved to you moved to West and you stayed within your your lane in terms of being an artist. In other words, you didn't have to come here and start a pizza shop. You know, not, not yes. that there's anything wrong with that, but that you yes. were able to stay in your lane and create a whole new, very successful life here in your lane that didn't involve um, the heartache of how am I going to go back? When am I going to go back? What did I have in Iran? That was so much better, et cetera. And so it's quite instructive. It's quite instructive. It's a, it's a it's an important story for people to hear. And by the way, yeah. You did it without there being, and I know this because my family was here, without there being much of an Iranian community here. So you, when you would have come with your wife and the kids in 1980, it's not like you had a support network around you of Iranians <laughs> saying, exactly uh, come on, let's uh, have chai. Like, you know, you're completely yeah. by yourself, right? And yes. you were able to somehow do this. That's why I want to kind of harp on this a little bit because I think it is instructive. It, it is. I, and, and the reason is that, I mean, we... Uh, <clears throat> I, um, for the same reason that you just, uh, you know, mentioned, there was there were nobody in here. I mean, I have a whole very very small group of Iranians that I mean we knew, we we got to know them, and completely a different class, different type of people. Uh, you know, nothing to do with us because we were struggling to make it, uh, you know, day by day living, and they were all multimillionaires, but they were here. But it was so small. There was nothing, uh, you know, about this thing. So uh, nowadays, the, one of the problems is that, I mean, when some, I'm talking about the type of work that I do, for instance, I mean, let's say art. Uh, the, the Iranian community right now in Canada is, is so big that so many businesses can be completely relying on them and then, uh, you right. know, carry right. on, for right. instance. And then I have seen artists, Iranian artists, who come here and then when they want to, for instance, produce some art, they're still painting, for instance, the, uh, uh, you know, little villages in Iran and then the tribes, people, tribesmen. I mean, completely, basically, uh, they put down their own, uh, you know, memories and their uh, own uh, ideas about the artist, which has nothing to do with the culture and then the, the, uh, the taste of the people in this side of the world. And that's why... Uh, you know, it doesn't go to, got, to together, but, but, but 
just because of the reason that they don't. Well, there's a, there's, a ceiling. Good, there's a ceiling. There's a ceiling. There's only yeah. so much you can, there's only so far you can go, especially if you're doing your work in Farsi and doing your work for a specific yeah. community that, that there's a ceiling and, and that's, and, and there's no opportunities for outreach to the broader community. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I've said this a few times on this show, but I know like, um, th- you know, people in their thirties who come from Iran, they've been here for about a decade and they still can't speak English. They don't because yes. they don't have any incentive, you know. Yeah. They go to they go to the local, you know, Iran Plaza, and they have a job within in, within the Iranian community, and they hang out with their family, and so there's no. But it's kind of like, well, well, how are how are we as a community going to make inroads if we're, no. we don't speak the language, right? That's exactly true. I was lucky; I knew, uh, I mean, how to speak English when I came here, but <clears throat> I knew right off the bat that. I cannot rely on anything uh, from Iran, even from the community, this and that. If I want to make anything out of myself, I have to, you know, basically, uh, um, uh, you know, embrace uh, this culture. And if I want to do something, I have to speak to a language that is understandable in this society. And that's why I was lucky that the type of paintings that I was doing back uh, at that time uh, which I really like to get into the, the 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 natural world and animals and stuff like that because of the society, uh, the Canadian society, uh, and then because of the culture of this, which is going on in this country about the the re- relation. There was an opening for that kind of. There work. was an opening for that kind of work, and then uh, I, I I continue following that. I learned the language. I learned the language of art or learned the uh, you know uh, different concept of uh, what was going on with that type of art, particular art that i was doing to be able to you know uh, get more and more uh, involved uh, you know with the canadian culture and whatever was happening here but and before we why- get there before we get there there's a resilience that i have to point out because um, you were talking about doing the job at the Toronto Sun and you're, you're drawing, which you love to do, but you're not really getting to really create your own things. You're sort of being told to, you're kind of like a draftsman, you're work for hire, you can do, the, do, these, do this kind of drawing. Uh, and you really end up not being able to break through as a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it could not have been easy for you to go for, from the prominent platform that you had in Iran to not being able to replicate that career here. Yes. That's that's the part where of your journey for all the success you've had that is impressive to me. That you somehow soldier on despite the fact that you just can't make it happen after years of being at the top of the game in Iran. That's right. I mean, the first thing I think everybody, I mean, I, I talk about myself. I mean, the major thing and the most important thing for me was, uh, you know, you lose your identity. I mean, the identity that you've been, uh, you know, relating yourself to it and as whatever it is. As soon as you come here, whatever you have done is, is irrelevant. And then the only thing which is there is is the work itself to create. If you're an artist, if you are not, as you mentioned, to selling pizza, getting at it and starting it. So physically getting into something and doing it. That's the name of the game. But having said that, it wasn't even easy. For a while, I was just drawing. I mean, the quality of my work was pretty good. 
But what I'm trying to say is that, I mean, being good at something is not necessarily enough. Mm. On top of that, you lose your identity too. You don't know what you are. Are you a cartoonist? Are you a painter? Are you this and that at the beginning itself? I mean, itself. You have to be good at what you're doing. But there are circumstances that are basically conducive to to what happens sure and we're you know, and we're in act two now uh, and you're yes. in canada and yeah. y- y- this is a this is a beautiful story here you become mesmerized by the art scene and as you say nature in canada you discover this new genre of wildlife art becoming big artists like robert bateman um and you see that being an illustrator um, and being a painter, it, 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 you can you can work within this field. It's amazing to me that you knew that you could do this kind of art. There's this great story of how you make these watercolor paintings, much like the kid who went to to uh, Tafik and and and, yes. uh, and and said, "Hey, look look at my drawings." You go to a gallery. <laughs> you go to a gallery in Hamilton. I mean, this is a, this is the through line of your story. It's like the un you know you never give up. You go and give and you show some watercolor paintings to. The this gallery, the Beckett Gallery in Hamilton, if I've yeah. got it right. And they say, you know what? This is good stuff. Let's do an exhibition. Make 20 or 30 of these. That's you, right. You do an exhibition, and by noon, what's the story? Well, yes. I mean, I, I took all these uh, paintings there, and I was so happy that, I mean, he gave me this opportunity because this was the gallery, actually, that Robert Bateman was showing, and it was a very prominent gallery. So it was a great thing for me that, to start to work there. So yes, I mean, I did uh, these uh, watercolors of birds uh, and then <clears throat> they were really detailed pictures. And then I took these things to him. And after a while, when he really examined each piece, you know, with a magnifying glass to see whether the feathers are there and this and that, very knowledgeable uh, person. And then he said that, when are you going to be ready for a one-man show? So uh, to make a long story short, uh, within a month, I had a one-man show there. And, then, and uh, within uh, you know, a couple of hours of the opening, 20 pieces of the whole 23 paintings that I had were sold. <laughs> so that was a very good indication for me that I just wanted to, to you know, uh, try the scene. Uh, I had, in the meantime, I had another gallery that I've you know, already had established some contact. Again, I took a few of my uh, drawing uh, paintings of <clears throat> watercolors of birds there. And then he sold again everything within a week. So I knew that what I was doing, regardless of the fact that it was something that I loved to do, because the reason I started to do uh, paintings of birds, and it was because, I mean, I came here uh, with the big bundle of love of animals and birds, since I had from my childhood, and suddenly I came across some books by Fenwick Lansdowne, Robert Bateman, Glenn Lodes, and then people like that. I was mesmerized that, yes, I mean, you can do drawings like that too. And that's why I got into it and I was doing these things. So one thing led to another, and then uh, through the galleries that I have established, uh, you know, contact. I was introduced to other galleries in the United States. I started to work with several galleries in the States. Uh, they started to publish my works as limited edition prints. And then it was such a, uh, you know, it, it became something really out of my control. 
What do you think it is about, uh, what is it about your paintings, these wildlife paintings? I mean, you've become massively successful as a painter. Uh, you know, I started the interview by saying there's these different acts. I, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about all this time in Iran and the prominent jobs that you had at, at National Radio and at Ete La Haute and all. Uh, none of them involved wildlife painting. You come to Canada, no. you become this very successful painter. You sell a lot. You still do. You've done hundreds and hundreds of paintings in the last 40 years. You actually told me that you've almost sold them all. You don't even have any because you sell them yes, all. Yes, that's true. Yes, what is it that lucky. people are reacting to in your work, do you think? Well, I mean, I think uh, the uh, it has nothing to do with me. I mean, I happen to, you know, love the natural world. And I mean, even in Iran, uh, as much as, uh, you know, there are so many uh, animals and bird uh, motifs, in, and you can find them in Iranian, uh, you know, Persian carpets and all the books of poetry, illustrated uh, imagery, stuff like that. But there have always been these imageries are being used as, as decorative um, or very, uh, uh, you know, simple forms that they've taken from them and use them in different materials and then for the different purpose. There has never been a direct attention to the life of the bird, for instance. I mean, at least I didn't, uh, you know, come across with anything like that back in Iran. So, um, yes, th I mean, the hunting and then, uh, you know, outdoorsmen are very, very active in Iran, lots of uh, interest in hunting, but never direct interest in the animal itself that, uh, that you hunt. So I was completely unfamiliar. I didn't know uh, that, I mean, even such an art uh, exists. And that's why when I came here, uh, as I said, I suddenly got into it. And by the way, for inspiration, you've you've been pretty much everywhere, right? In the wilderness to kind of see the the type of things that you use in your imagination to paint? Yes. I mean, for doing animal art, uh, apart from the fact that, I mean, you have to have technical ability uh, of drawing and painting to the best of your ability, uh, for this genre of art is not enough because you have to know a lot about the subjects that you paint, about the environment that they live in, about the, 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 the different types of uh, the colors that they go through during, uh, you know, each year and that kind of thing. So uh, before I even, uh, you know, dare to show my, uh, you know. Sorry, why do you, why do you need to know a lot? Is it because the viewer has to feel that this is realistic? Yes. Be no, it has nothing to do with being realistic or not. I mean, but the, uh, your audience, uh -huh. is a knowledgeable audience. Uh -huh. I mean, if you're painting dogs and geese and wat waterfowls, I mean, the people who are interested in these things, they're hunters. Right. You know, there are people who know exactly when you're looking at the uh, duck from which angle they land, with, with relevant to the, uh, you know, <laughs> right, the wind, right, for right, instance. Right, I mean, right. they fly this, that, that. They know every details about these things. And you have to be you know, aware of those things in order to be able to, to produce an authentic scene. I mean, I had to go through uh, lots of study, I mean, through libraries, books and magazines and talking to people. I ended up knowing some of these people uh, who were the clients of, of my uh, works. They took me to their, uh, you know, ranches, the places, showing me their animals, their horses, you know, talking about hunting the stories. And I got information and inspirations from these things to be able to uh, uh, create my work. On top of that, 
even for the accuracy, you had to go through a lot. I had to, to learn a, a lot about the anat anatomical forms and arrangements of the, uh, you know, feathers and birds and those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, used to, uh, for instance, uh, just borrow these uh, the dried specimens of, of, of birds mm. and uh, the different uh, kinds of birds of prey, this and that, to be able to uh, exactly check the colors and the number of feathers and then do the drawings, you know, from them. I, mean, I had times that, I mean, my, uh, you know, um, shelves were completely covered with all these dead birds, you know, borrowed from Royal Ontario <laughs> Museum. So, yeah, it, it's a combination of what when you do it wildlife, when you do wildlife paintings, uh, you have to be really, really someone more than just a skillful draftsman. So the reason there's an Act 3 is that you have then become, in more recent years, an acclaimed sculptor. And so to recap, by the 1990s, Ahmed Sakhovars has come to Canada with his family, has become a very successful painter in wildlife. Uh, that you're, there, you're set. You've got the career. You're doing well. You can pump out these paintings. So you've got a passion for it. You love it. But you decide that you also want that you want to take the art that you do which is i think as far as i know up until this point has been drawings and paintings and you want it to be 3d you want to start creating physical art in fact so much so you start taking sculpting courses at the ontario college of art in the 1990s yes. to learn how to make molds why was sculpting so interesting to you well it started the uh, i mean I, I never sat and decided one day that i wanted to to do sculpture uh, I was using little maquettes uh, in order to figure out the proper direction of the light uh, of the, uh, for instance, uh, the animal that I was painting relevant to the lighting in the, in the landscape that I had taken pictures of, for instance. And so by moving around these little uh, figurines of animals back and forth, turning around to different lighting, I could come up with the close enough uh, you know, correct lighting relevant to the uh, scene and then do a little sketch and then take it from there and then do the details and then complete the pictures. While doing these little uh, modelings, I, I really felt that to begin with, it would, they, they came so easy for me uh, to do them. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, gradually there was a third dimension in, in something that I was doing that I was not completely familiar with at all, you know. Uh, I got so interested in that gradually that uh, I started to do a little bit more elaborated, you know, figures of, of animals and then a couple of eagles and then a cougar and that kind of thing. And gradually I really liked these things. I still didn't know uh, anything about the uh, proper sculpture uh, process. So, um, and I used to do things in clay and then fire them in uh, ceramics. You know, very small, like hand, uh, you could ha keep it in, in your hand, very small pieces like that. But in gradually, through the shows that I was participating in different, uh, you know, parts of the United States here and there, I, uh, I got familiar with the bronze, uh, you know, aspect of the sculpture, which I uh, really was interested back then. Uh, and then uh, I uh, realized that I just couldn't do uh, what I wanted to do. Uh, without having a little bit more knowledge about the process of 
uh, putting these things uh, together as in a sculpture. So I uh, enrolled in uh, Royal Ant uh, in um, the Ontario College of Art uh, for a part-time uh, <clears throat> uh, course of sculpture. After that, again, uh, got into mold making because it is part of the sculpture uh, making, and then you know you have to know how to do it. So again, I continued and got the to the course of advanced mold making, which I did it. And then, so I started to do sculpture, you know, then uh, the subject matter is another story that, I mean, how we ended up doing uh, animals, not animals anymore, and I got into the figure part of it. You know, um, your sculpting work is arresting. I mean, it is, it is, I don't think anyone could... I'm going to hazard a guess that no one would see this stuff in person, and I've had the great fortune to see a lot of your work, um, to stand in front of it um, in different exhibitions, and uh, I have a friend or two that have some of your work. Um, it, 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 you'll never forget it once you see an Alan Sachavars and Ahmed Sachavars, uh, a, a sculpture. But the real joy in it is the fact that w what we referred to earlier in this interview of you coming full circle because this breathtaking work also has elements of cartoon in it, caricature, and um, and commentary. And it must be kind of, uh, you must get kind of a chuckle uh, out of the fact that you're selling these um, expensive pieces of, sc of sculpture <laughs> that, are, that are really basically, you know, back to cartoons. your little cartoons that you were doing <laughs> as a kid, right? Yes, exactly true. Exactly true. I mean, uh, apart from doing political cartoons that, I mean, you have to be able how to turn it around to make it a little bit funny or critical or this and that. But the process of thinking and coming up with, with uh, uh, how should I say it, the, the ideas that, uh, you know, that defies the, uh, the, the normal process of thinking to be able to uh, create a, um, a satirical uh, impulse in people or, or uh, make them uncomfortable or, uh, or comfortable, that kind of thing. So that exactly goes back to the way that we think about cartoons. Now, uh, I have been able to just pick up that uh, formula, you know, you can say, and then uh, just apply it to the way, uh, to, in, in a way, a very uh, more serious way uh, to, to create my uh, sculptures basically using uh, human forms in them. Ahmed, notwithstanding the success that you've now had in Canada and across the West in, over the last 40 years, uh, how do you feel being of Iranian background or being an immigrant has informed you as an artist? It, it definitely, uh, I mean, whatever uh, the background uh, that I had as, as, an, as, as a cartoonist and as an illustrator in Iran has been the basically the stepping stone of whatever I have done here. So I wouldn't, you know, separate the two together. I mean, whatever I learned there came handy here. But as far as the influence of the culture in my work, I should say uh, definitely exists, sometimes uh, deliberately, sometimes unconscious, and uh, you're not conscious about it, and it comes through, through the way of thinking. Especially in my sculpture, uh, I have been able to really go back and drive ideas back from 
cultural aspect of, of my thinking that I couldn't have been able to do it otherwise. I mean, for instance, uh, bringing, uh, thinking about poetries, these, uh, the mystical uh, poetries in Iran, and then uh, bringing back those ideas of uh, relevant to the human uh, thinking and then the, the human beings and then the relationships and then being, uh, you know, self-consciousness self of us towards ourselves and to towards others. So all these complications which you can find through poetry and the literature of Iranian culture and culture of Iran, you know, all these things comes together and I can use those things and I have been able to use those things and it helped me a lot. In, in come up with the ideas that, uh, you know, in my sculptures uh, to create something. And then usually going back again to the, the you know, all the different ways of thinking about the, the, the ideas that I get, most of the stuff that I do is just basically based on the questions that I have uh, for myself. I mean, from life, from our approach to life and all those th things. Uh, you know, I do these things and I really don't want exactly to impose those feelings to the person who looks at my work. Mm. You know, I want them to look at these things and then they come up with their own conclusion by creating questions, you know, rather than answering what I want to do and what, I, what I, uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling about this particular sculpture. So most of the time I uh, figures I, I use that they don't have any uh, particular character about them. I mean, I use human forms to move it around and then create different emotion and then, uh, you know, incorporate other aspects of, of symbolic aspects of, uh, you know, different objects and forms that can basically show what I have in mind to express that feelings. Let me, let me ask you a, a final question about, um, uh, about politics, because um, there are people in the Iranian community who... Um, usually folks who are activists or politically active themselves, who expect any uh, artist of Iranian descent to be making political commentary, to be addressing what's happening, you know, back in the old country with the regime, etc. We had um, um, two or three months ago uh, the great Parvis Tanavali on the show. I'm sure he's a friend of yours. I'm sure you know him. Yes. And yeah. uh, I, I adore him. You know, he he does not go out of his way to make political works. And it was interesting in the aftermath of having him, him on the show that we got a few comments like he should be more political. He should be speaking out against the regime, etc. And it raised the question of is it is this a requirement for people of Iranian artists of Iranian descent to be political? Uh, you do the occasional political cartoons still. You recently did yes. one for a project supporting Nasrin Sotoudeh, who's been jailed in Iran. Yes. But you've said you don't want to live in Canada and be making commentaries about mullahs forever. Uh, tell, tell me about that sentiment. Well, it's, uh, the editorial cartoon that I do and I have done uh, requires uh, that you have a very close involvement uh, of the subject that you're talking about. For instance, while you're in Iran, I, I could uh, do exactly the, the best thing that I, the ideas, come up with the ideas that I could do. And, and after I came out of Iran, it again, uh, it was hot 
situation, things continue, continuing there, and then people were still, uh, you know, the government people, the, the, uh, you know, I knew them uh, when they were in power, they were going back and forth, I was familiar with the whole structures, and then I could still express myself through my cartoons, being really critical of the whole idea that I was against. But it's been four years that I'm in Canada, and then the more uh, time I spent here, the far away I've been uh, from uh, uh, the the politics, the details of the politics going on in Iran. That yeah. immediate uh, impact of an edu editorial cartoon, it, it just goes away. I mean, mind you, the time that we're talking about right now is different from like 30 years ago when I was working directly as a cartoonist there. Now you have social media and everything is quickly and I can do a cartoon right away and then millions of people can see that and this and that. But back then we didn't even have this you know, opportunity uh, to do that. But gradually when the time passed, I started to realize that I don't know the details anymore. I don't know particular ministers, for instance, and uh, running this organization, that organize, organization. And in order to be able to do a, a, you know authentic editorial approach to what the cartoon, the cartoons about that I was doing, I would have been, you know, uh, becoming something, uh, some sort of generalizing ideas mm -hmm. and then expressing myself about big general important ideas at the same time mm -hmm. human rights this atrocities uh, it, it, but immediate uh, contact with the happenings of the day was gradually evaporating and then i realized that if i want to continue without the, the proper knowledge and the immediate knowledge about what uh, what is happening i mean i've been you, you're just doing anti-mullah. You're just doing anti-mullah cartoons over and over exactly. again. Exactly. I mean, how yeah. many times you can you know draw a mullah killing this, <laughs> you know, the yeah. shooting that, this and that, blink, drinking blood. I mean, yeah, but I mean, then it it, it really lost its uh, appeal for me to be uh, immediately involved in it. But at the same time, whenever I get a chance, uh, and then there is a major happening that I can familiar. I'm familiar with. I mean, yeah, by all means, I do something. Unfortunately, right now, uh, I have the opportunity to be able to, you know, immediately, you know, show it to, to so many people. It has been such a uh, such a joy talking to you. It always is, and I'm I'm so grateful for this interview and this walk through your life. I, I really am. I mean, it, uh, not only does it inform your your art, but it informs uh, so many of our journeys. Listening to 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 your story and lessons learned. Um, let me end here. You, you you're the successful artist in all these different forms. Act one, two, three. Art form one, two, three. You said that. You've never made this art for money. The success you've found has clearly been great. There's nothing wrong with getting the paychecks and, and selling the art the way you have, but that it hasn't been what it's been about for you. Well, tell no. me about tell me about where you're at now. I mean, it occurs to me that you never really have to retire from being the kind of artist you are, but uh, you are 77 years old as of today. You can do this for the next 30 years if you want, but you don't have to. You've, you've been successful. What is it about for you at this stage? Uh, yes, I've been really blessed with, uh, you know, do something that 
uh, usually when I talk to some of my friends, they say, uh, you know, what are you going to be doing when you retire? And I always say, well, I mean, wh whoever, usually people get reti retired to do what I do as a hobby. <laughs> so this, this is something that, so there's no retirement for me as long right. as I can, you know, move my arms right. and hands, right. and, you know, walk You can around. retire and do some sculpting. Oh, wait, <laughs> that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah right, I mean, uh, right now uh, what I'm doing, uh, I'm uh, producing art, you know, mostly sculptures these days. Other than that, uh, you know, working on a couple of books of my works, putting it together after all these years uh, to uh, to see how things go. And then in the meantime, you know, uh, trips uh, between my studio at home and uh, the foundry, uh, you know, continues as long as I can carry on. Well, hopefully it continues for many decades to come. It, you're... Your artwork is um, a treasure, and it is, uh, you, again, such a joy to talk to you. I thank you for this today. Oh, Sam here, and I really appreciate that, uh, and uh, I've been a big fan for a long, long time, and I'm so glad that you're, uh, you know, uh, producing such a beautiful things, catering to uh, the, uh, you know, uh, Iranians in particular, and uh, I wish you uh, nothing but uh, success and uh, looking forward to see you again soon. Thank you, Ahmadan. Take care, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ahmad Alan Sakhavars, an acclaimed Iranian-Canadian artist who has used drawing, painting, and sculpting as vehicles with which to weave his imagination into an art form. His beautiful works can be found at his website, which we will link to uh, in our show description, and through the Saharke Baluki Art Gallery in Toronto. I've talked about this place before. A great new Persian art gallery in Toronto, Saharke Baluki Art Gallery. We reached the birthday boy, Ahmad Sakhavars, in Streetsville, Ontario today. Microphone's back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, the fabulous Keon. Uh, well, I, my my uh, enthusiasm was probably palpable there. I'm I'm a, I, I I really am a fan of this man, what he does, and um, his story is uh, a great one of resilience. Of uh, you know, I think I said at the top of the show that uh, he's the poster boy for integration. This idea mm -hmm. that he comes from Iran and goes, I'm not looking back. I'm going to try and do do something in my field here and put my all my energies towards that and then does it and becomes successful again uh, in a different art forms from what he was originally doing. I mean, he doesn't spend time stewing over the fact that, uh, mm. you know, well, I used to be a big cartoonist and now I'm not here. And and uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's just a great story. And I'll echo once again that his um, his sculptures, if you haven't had a chance to see them, uh, at least go online and, and find the link from our Instagram or our, our website to his and then take a look at some of his sculptures because they're just, they really are breathtaking. Um, that's Keon, that's super impressive for him to go from cartooning to sculptures. Like that, 
to, most people focus on one thing and just do really good at that that niche. But for him to go to switch around just quickly like that, and it's, how it's he very sees it, he sees it as a continuum. Yeah, it's absolutely. all coming. It's all makes sense to him, and it kind of does actually. After all his paintings and the wildlife, and the, when you look at the sculptures, you go, yeah, this is where this is the culmination of this yeah. artist that has been growing through years and and different continents and different events uh, in his life. Yeah. Um, Groovy Shaya, did you want to say something about Ahmed Sakhavars? Actually, first of all, uh, happy birthday to Mr. Sakhavars mm. again, and I, I it was a it was a you know breathtaking. Uh, and le- educational story life mm. life story yeah yeah and uh, I, I i want to mention that i live with a canadian sculptor these days and uh you told me that we are going to interview ahmad sahabars and i told him that do you know this guy and he said oh yeah of course i know of him and uh, it was uh, I, I was kind of proud of you know yeah. The, yeah well as I told you I knew him as a Canadian artist originally mm. I didn't I didn't even know I mean I think Ian probably doesn't know that he's a the, Iranian or yeah, something no, yeah, yeah, yeah he was, he was yeah. surprised oh yeah. is he Iranian yeah wow. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Not your romantic partner, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> just to people like, you know, I not live with him. Not, that, with not that there would be nothing wrong with it, but just to clarify, uh, Shia is, uh, it doesn't. And not, not a Canadian sculpture, a sculptor. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's a sculptor. Yeah. There you go. Captain Reza? You know what's amazing about his story? That the fact that he did it back then when opportunities weren't as. Um, uh, open and as available as they are now. Now there are, it's, uh, I'd say it's easier to be able to, not that it's e- it's ever easy, but easier to be able to migrate and integrate because of technology and how it's mm-hmm. become a uh, more of a global uh, community mm-hmm. to the world in general. But I was I was taking a subway down downtown a little while ago and I saw this poster. And again, this speaks to how um, uh, Canada and the Western world in general, like becoming more open to accepting immigrants and giving them more opportunities to thrive. So I saw this poster. In some w- cases. In some cases. There's that we go through periods where some people want to build a wall. But that's uh, right. Yeah, that's but right. Yeah. That's right. There are always obstacles and, and bumps in the w- along the way. But I, I, I'd say it's safe to say that we're better than we were 20 years ago. Um, with that in mind, I saw this poster on the subway. It was a picture of a middle-aged man, good-looking fella. And underneath it, it said... This is Joe so-and-so. He's from Greece. He migrated to Canada with his family. He's got two daughters. He's an engineer and a PhD in something, some field. He can take you from Dundas Square to Kensington Market for (laughs) $13.99. And it it was, um, and when I was listening to uh, Ahmad, it it resonated with me so much. I was like, that's incredible. He could have been that guy. I've heard so many of these stories, but he didn't. His resilience, his perseverance, and he he fought his way through it and he made it. He made it. I'm so proud. I'm so proud of him. Yeah. It's also, I mean, not to. We, we do say this with I say this with regularity and I apologize that if it just sounds like a uh, a tutti mm-hmm. I'm, tutti, uh, like I, I, I'm <laughs> parroting this over and over again but but it's so sad that talents like his yeah. you know I mean it, it's really I mean he didn't have any stake in the game he wasn't it's not like he was a a major he's a cartoonist mm-hmm. you know yeah. uh, a really talented cartoonist yeah. forced to leave yeah. mm. because and you know almost put in jail 
by the Pahlavi, you know, uh, government regime, you know, because because of the, what he was cartooning. But but still, that's not good enough. When the revolution happens, it's like all of these people, you know, seen as intellectuals or part of the the journalists, or you know, are either going to be potentially killed off or have to flee. It, it, it's it's so. It, 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 it to me it never stops being a sad story mm. that affects and infects the rest of our lives you know and uh, and and the the life of our country of ancestry yeah. i just wanted to say political cartooning is the epitome of freedom it's something that we really take for granted in the west it's yeah. people get killed over it in some yeah. countries so it's you know we should respect well, that well and more. then there's a whole debate about whether the political cartoonists actually do have freedom these days because uh, it's the days of sensitivity Very and true. you know uh, uh, I mean <sighs> there's Charlie Abdo and that whole debate yeah, and you yeah. know so um, <laughs> that's for another day yeah. <laughs> uh, it is Thursday it's almost Noruz and who better than a chef to guide us to the promised land of Noru's cuisine. He is the captain of cuisine, the culinary colonel, the Tabrizi talisman, the Farsi foodmeister, the Turkish tradesman. It's your chef, Has Zareh, and this is Rook Hospitality. Hi, this is your chef, Has Zareh, and this is Rook Chef Haas. Hello there. Hello, Tim. How are you? How is beautiful San Francisco? It's cold and lots of snoozing this morning. Snoozing? Snoozing. You're a snoozer? I, I, I depend, but today was cold. I didn't want to get out of the bed, so <laughs> I did. <laughs> Chef, I see for the segment today that you're going to teach us uh, how to best make galia sauce for Noruz. Now, I was saying earlier in the show that I know that you're you're quite adamant that sabzi poloba mahi, which is um, uh, white fish or fish with with uh, herbed rice, that we all associate with noruz, is not the only dish that represents noruz. Is that correct? Uh, correct. Uh, it, it's because of regional food, what came from what the people had access to it. And so even though we had the North uh, Caspian Sea and the Persian Gulf, there are lots of fish. Even the later on, they brought some dried fish, but it wasn't as popular around the, uh, Iran. But the one thing I can mention was the Ash Reshte, because Ash Ashbaz, Ashbaz Khune, the stable dish of Iran. And Ash Reshte was the one common, pretty much I know they made it. And the reason was because noodles inside, they don't tie together, so they don't get nuts. So they wish everybody had a nuts-free Mean, mean, means uh, headache, less headache life. No knots, right, right. No knots. <laughs> do you know how Sabzi Polabamahi became the, I mean, before we get to the Kaliye, um, how how it became associated with, with uh, Noruz? I don't know the exact date, but after the rice introduced us, and the mahi, the, the fish has been always in the resemble of sofre because it means life, and it's been there. But as a food, to be honest, I don't know. So well, that's that makes a lot of sense in terms of the fish and life. And so, what is your your prescription or your video this week is how to best make galia sauce, um, galia mahi? What what is galia sauce? Well, every culture has its own kind of fish stew, like a cupino, cucuco Italian, and Iranian sauce. The region of Iran has a galia. Galia is basically, you know, the South Iran is like other part of Iran. It's been, been cross-culture from North Africa to the southwest of, west of the Asia. So 
It's basically, it's, you're talking about the fish cooked in tamarind, lots of acidic, no tomato, they were no tomato pistos, so tamarind base, and lots of garlic because of the, again, it's healthy, and also takes the fish flavor away, and citrusy flavor of the stew. Mm. So I, My mouth is getting watery. I yes, so this, and, and, it's, and I think... Galier, if I remember correctly from when I've had it, it's spicy, right? It's uh, which yes. I, which I I love. I mean, growing up, uh, I loved spicy things, and based on my mom's cooking, it, she always sort of taught me that things are Persian food is not spicy. So I'm always so happily surprised when I find out. But it's usually because it's from the south, right? If it's spicy. yeah, the south has like some spicy, like a galia mahia sauce, so bandari, and that's the only region you can find the spiciest food compared to other regions of Iran. Correct. And and what does I mean? You mentioned it a, a second ago there, but to put a fine point on it, what does galia add to the taste of our dishes? Well, if you look at the galia's flavor, it, it, what is in it? Is it is it cilantro uh, and also fenugreek, which is chambalier, and the base of that sabzi. That's one of the scene of the table. Then you have a garlic, another s from the table, and they have fish. So you have three major player of the ha- table. The rules you have it there. So that can count one of the delicious meals you can put on a Nowruz and for the regional dish. And also introducing the regional dishes for the people. That's great, man. This is really so. So, uh, what is the, I mean, we're all going to watch your video at rookmedia.com and on Telegram. But what, what is the trick to making great Galia sauce that you explore in the video? Great question, Jan John. I am showing basically how to first make the sauce and simple way. And also, I'm adding a little smoked paprika for flavor as a chef point. But also, the trick is on my sauce. I'm making sauce separately because when you put the sauce, cooking the fish inside, you chance of breaking the uh, fish to pieces become like soupy. And that's one problem. Lots of little techniques is there. And also, provide you with a vegan-based sauce you can prepare with different dishes, like I'm doing it with the king trumpet mushrooms. So that's an ideal the dream dish for the vegan, with the mushroom, with that delicious sauce, with the rice next to it, if you like. Or I'm doing it with different variety of fish. So I am trying to show the technique as a chef that respect the fish and not to overcook and not to get also soupy in the dish. And um, it's... It, it, uh, it shows the beauty of the dish, and also we talk about Iranian food doesn't have a presentation. I'm showing with little step forward, we can make the, our dishes very beautiful. This is weird. You mentioned vegan, though. So can kalia sauce be be used for to garnish things that are not fish? Uh, why not? You can do a bit of um, uh, like a, if you can make that a little bit less uh, uh, tamarind, you can use it for the any gamey meats actually. Same as Fesenjun, you can use it for chicken, you can use it with the duck or the venison. It can go very well with the little adjustment. Mm. Well, we will look forward to this video, how to best make galie mahi sauce, spicy tamarind fish, basically, for Noruz, Chef Haas, always knocking out of the park. If you haven't checked out his videos before, there's there's a few now on everything from how to make a limu, limu amoni, the dried limes, to, um, uh, to, to how to use sumac. Uh, go to rookmedia.com. Chef Haas, it's always a pleasure on Thursdays. I want to give a little shout out to your, um, uh, of course, we've talked about how you're on Clubhouse a lot, and you'll, of course, be joining us tomorrow night on our, our regular Rook uh, Town Hall uh, our cl- uh, on Clubhouse. But you also do a, 
this great uh, uh, weekly uh, room on Clubhouse. I guess it's on, is it on Sundays where you do, you have per- chefs join you and you talk about Persian cuisine? Yes, we do at 10 o'clock to Sunday is uh, our California time. And I have amazing chefs around. I mean, we've been the guest chefs. Last week, we had ladies over there talking about Persian uh, dessert and food. And it's uh, amazing. And also, I want to take this chance to tell the, from last episode, last week episode about Limamani. I got bombarded from American chefs and everybody how they were blown away and they are making it. So that was amazing. Wow. Uh, 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 had on the shoulder for me and I make me very happy to hear that's that. great man congratulations that's really great to hear it well you do great stuff here on Rook and I think more and more people are discovering it and and so um, thank you for this and yes we will check you out 10 a.m. 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern Eastern time for those of us who are in that time zone on Sundays uh, Chef Haas on, on Clubhouse but of course we'll see you uh, tomorrow night at our Rook Town Hall as well thank you Chef Haas bye thank Chef you. Uh, thank you thank you, guys. you thank you have a wonderful day Happy Noruz in advance. I'm going to get my AD from Shayan. <laughs> <laughs> He's very generous. Chef Hasare in San Francisco with hospitality. See the video again at rookmedia.com and at our Telegram channel, Rook Media. Thank you, fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, Groovy Shaya. That is full time for Rook for today. Of course, for all things Rook. Rookmedia.com is our website. If you haven't checked it out, please do. We're quite proud of it at this point. It has all of our, our episodes there. It has the Chef Haas videos there. Some talking points, some Rook reads, some extras. And the page where you can become a patron for 5 or $10 a month and support this program. We really appreciate it when folks do that. We see you on the list and we appreciate you. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Producer Susan Ponta, the artist, Thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous Keon, Sabi Roham, Alay Merdad, Master Muhammad, Chef Haas, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thanks to those of you subscribing. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizun Bashi.